the incomparable. Number 305, June 2016. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. We're here to do one in our continuing very slow series of walks through the films of Pixar. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about Toy Story number two. Joining me to talk about Toy Story 2 are the following fine people. And also me. Steve Lutz. I regret saying fine people now. Hi. Yeah, so we meet again, Jason Snell, for the last time. <laughs> Also out there is uh, somebody whose Skype icon now looks like a an old prospector. It's Merlin Mann. Hi, Merlin. My biscuits are burning. <laughs> Yow! Also out there, Aline Sims. Hello and welcome to the Pixar Club. Hi. Good to have you here. Thank you. Uh, the Internet's very own Dr. Drang joins us for a movie that is not quite old enough to be considered old movie club, although it is from the last century. Hello. I've got some hot tea and a stack of hot schmoes. <laughs> it is good to be sitting around the campfire with a bunch of delicious hot schmoes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, he, he he's always here for the Pixar Club. It's John Syracuse. Hi, John. Turn into the spin, Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 1999's Toy Story 2. Are there any opening statements about Toy Story 2? I just have to ask in case somebody has an opening statement about it. I just have statements about the opening, no opening statements. <laughs> All right, so Toy Story 2, the the, the sequel to uh, the first uh, full-length computer-animated feature, which was a huge hit in 1995, and uh, they, they followed it up uh, uh, several years later uh, with this, the final in the duology of Toy Story until then, many years later. They made a third one, and now they're making a fourth one. Uh, but uh, but Toy Story 2, it was fun to revisit this. I had actually, after a while, I kind of forgot what was in what movie, and this was delightful to revisit it. Uh, should I just do as I traditionally do, which is walk us through the plot and let you stop me and tell me what you want to tell, and then I try to move on, and then Steve says, well, wait, 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 you missed something? And then we back up and then we go forward. Should I do that? Hey, it's, it's worked That's well so far. That's how it works. Yes. <laughs> That's how it works. Aloha. <laughs> Why should we stop now? Aloha. Hello. <laughs> Although it is funny that you mentioned that um, that you kind of forgot what goes where because the first thing I noticed while watching this movie is um, I don't really remember much of what went on in this movie. And I've seen this like five or six times. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's because the the emotional core of the movie is so strong that the sort of standard uh, toys, you know, searching to rescue, to rescue Woody kind of stuff, which is all pretty good. It, it just it feels kind of slight by comparison, and it's it's like I didn't even remember the fact that it opened with the big uh, uh, Zerg, right? Sort of a video game thing. It just completely slipped my mind, and I was surprised to see it there. I had the opposite experience. I I remember these openings, like the the big 3D shiny letters coming at you, like they're from an 80s uh, Superman movie or something. Mm-hmm. I remember going into this, having come off of Toy Story and been like, you know, well, how are they going to do Toy Story 2? Like, they're blowing it. They're doing a sequel. It's silly. And just being delighted by how off balance uh, that put me, you know, like, obviously, this would become a thing uh, with Toy Story 3 opening in the same way with sort of the the world of imagination of the toys. But that scene and the fact that it opened and it took itself seriously with Buzz flying through the the canyons. I mean, and and of course the graphics look, looked a lot better to me back then. Sure, uh, I found that delightful, and I was surprised watching this movie. How not only do I remember every single scene, every single line, every single character, every single nuance of the animation, every single 
little character movement just uh, I think I imprinted much more strongly on this movie and uh, I remember just being riveted and, and watching it again I haven't watched it in years and years watching it again it was kind of like watching one of those movies from the 80s that uh, is just sort of like soaked into your bones that it's kind of mm-hmm. part of you and you don't realize how much until you watch it again well I hadn't watched it since uh, since I saw it in the theater in 1999 uh, until I saw it uh, preparing wow. for the podcast, wow. but it all came back. I mean, I rec- I remembered everything, you know, as it's playing out. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. And of course, the reason I didn't watch it in all that time is because it tears me up. It's true. I did have that moment. In fact, I told my wife that we were doing a Pixar for uh, for uh, it was a new installment of the Pixar Club, and she said, "Which which Pixar movie that makes me cry? Will you be watching this time?" And I said, "Oh, it's <laughs> Toy Story 2. She said, "Oh, I could tell you exactly what scene will make me cry." I said, "Oh, I know." I know. I know what the cry, crying scenes are in Toy Story 2. This is before they figured out they could make a whole movie do that with Inside Out. Well, that's the thing is I remembered the the scenes very well. I, obviously, I remember the big sort of centerpiece uh, song. And I remembered all of the stuff where they're hanging out at Al's apartment and all the sort of emotional, you know, uh, stuff about being eventually uh, abandoned and and the the, ch- the child moving on and forgetting their toys and all that stuff. I remembered all that extremely well. It's just each of everything else besides that was just like gone. And I remember oh. when I watched the movie, of course, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this space scene. And oh, I remember them crossing the road here. But if if you had asked me before watching the movie again, what happens in this movie? Can you tell me what scenes occur? I could I would have said well there's the thing in the apartment <laughs> and that's it and there's the sad scene with the sarah mclaughlin song i would have i would have been able mm-hmm. to call that out yep yeah there's the part where i cry yeah, yeah. <laughs> damn right I, I think some part of the like if for the people who didn't remember it uh, my impression rewatching it now years after watching it so many times is that a lot of the a lot of the the settings and scenes are more ambitious than than toy story but they didn't quite have the sophistication or maybe it was just the art direction to sort of give each one of those locations a distinctive look. So it's kind of like there's there's a kind of sameness to all the locations. I mean, obviously the things in the house look like the first movie because the first movie spent a lot of time in the house and in the yard. And when they go out on the street or in buildings or even in the airport and on the runaways, I don't know if it's the lighting or the, the, the selection of textures or whatever, but the, it's kind of... It's kind of blah. Whereas I think if you if you just close your eyes and and someone says Toy Story three, you could like picture the orange of the incinerator or <laughs> like the the darkness of the of the the toy the toys at the nursery and stuff like that. Like I feel like that visually, this movie is a little bit flat, and it was it's a limitation of technology at the time. But I think it's also uh, that they I don't think they were quite up to being able to pull off so many different settings mm. in uh, in a single movie. I don't know. There's, I maybe with. It seems like one of the limitations still at this point is things like surfaces. So they're very circumspect about what they choose to, you know, do image map kind of things on. You know, where it's going to have a texture. So it ends up looking a little shiny. It's a, it, to me, it's a quantum leap in terms of appearance over Toy Story One. Toy Story One is the only one of the Pixar movies. I, mean, I love them all, but when I do go back, I go, wow. You know, I got to remember that's 1995. Whereas with this one, I still really feel like I do. I feel like there's so much more with the expressions where like when somebody's saying something, their face has so much subtlety to it. But also, I mean, this is one of the ones, this was a really big Pixar movie in our house around 2009, 2010. We were watching this a lot. And I, I do remember all the scenes, but you know, what I forget is just what a, what a wonderful salad of uh, visual gags, uh, very funny dialogue, 
And a, 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 just a terrific Pixar touch is like a, like a funny pun or a bit that just goes by so quickly. And that's the thing is like, I don't, I'm, yeah, I'm noticing stuff like the textures in the chairs and no, you know, noticing the vertical blinds. But uh, what, what the thing that really sticks with me though is the pacing. It's so well, I feel like it's so quickly paced. And there's also this nice feeling. You ever notice like whenever a big part of the act ends, Bo Peep says something and it fades to black. And there's all kinds of, you know, fun wipes, fun dissolves. And, you know, just, just right before this, of course, I went to Wikipedia to make sure I didn't miss anything. I had no idea this was such a troubled production because it feels so effortless to watch and has, it is so propulsive in telling its story. It hits emotionally. It's funny. There's action and there's just unexpected sight stuff. It's, uh, I think it's a triumph. Yeah, I was surprised to find out about the uh, the troubled production or the, mostly the compressed schedule part of it. There. Right, right, right. Um, but, although it made a lot more sense when I got to the part where uh, where the cleaner says, you can't rush art. And, and I could just picture them <laughs> writing that. Going, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The main thing I notice, I do, one thing I do notice is that I, I don't have any, I, God, I hope Dr. Wave isn't listening to this. I, I uh, <laughs> there's, there's some parts that look so... One thing I noticed in this one, you know, they always say like in every Pixar movie, they're showing off something new that they've gotten right. Yeah. Right. Like it could be, could be hair. It could be water. It could be various kinds of motion, whatever it is. Like, um, in this case, I feel like the lighting, this and Bugs Life, both the lighting, lighting is so great in this. And I'm trying to say mm-hmm. to my daughter, you know, like, like, let's see when they're running around at night and he runs up to the mailbox and he's like two blocks down, 19 more to go. It's like, that really looks like night. <laughs> and then it really looks like they're walking through a light. Uh, and, uh, I, I don't, I, I did not feel any sense of, but here's what I will say. Some scenes do look a little more, hmm, like they didn't get the full resources to, to like make this perfect. And that's, that's the only thing I, I would say I noticed in terms of qualities. That's, there was a, some a Delta with some scenes feel, feeling like really exquisitely rendered and others feeling a little bit like, you know, good, like above average. There's a, uh, scene where they're going down the sidewalk and they're under the trees and there's shafts of light coming through the trees. And so as they walk the light, you know, you're, they're in the shadow of the leaves and then there's direct sunlight and the, and it's all kind of as they're walking down the street, it's perfectly natural. And I thought to myself, well, that's, a bug's life right there. They learned how to do all the stuff with light going through leaves and so they know how to do that and so they do it here and it's very impressive because they that could have been an evenly lit scene and instead it's it's not evenly lit at all. Um and some other scenes are much more simpler simple, but that one that one impressed me and I thought that's that's an example where they built up that toolkit with a bug's life and they and then they deployed it in the next movie, which is Toy I think Story. The reach exceeded their grasp a little bit here like is they uh, they hid they hid the humans so much in the first movie and toy story one like they really just tried to concentrate on the shiny plastic toys because that's what they could do right and this one you have more humans and you have more of the dog and both the humans and the dog uh, i mean sid didn't look great in the first movie and the humans <laughs> and the dog still don't look great here and they put a- them Andy, on andy's mom andy's mom is a grotesque she's like a man and his mom both <laughs> look terrible but i think al actually works pretty well because he's supposed yeah. to be kind of grotesque as yeah, does more Jerry, of course, which they already yeah. had the resources for that from the from the short. Right. But yeah, the, the dog, dog in mess. particular is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like the anime. Here's the thing. The animation in this is great. Like if you watch like the whoever animated the dog did an excellent job. But the surface details of the dog are just are they're not there. They don't they don't have it yet. Um, and he looks like he's thing. being lit lit from some different source. His his the fur doesn't look right. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. everything in this movie, though, like I I a lot of the scenes like you it's a big such a leap over toy story uh one it's almost as if like everything is higher res it's not really i don't know if it's really the case but anyway it, everything looks like 
softer edged and not as hard and shiny all the time and a little bit better with satin finishes but it, it just like i said art direction wise i feel like there's a limited number of if this was a comic book and you flip through it there would be kind of a similar thing going on it wouldn't it, you know they do the color scheme i forget what they're called but like this saw one for the incredibles to show like this is the scene where everything's red because they're in the lava place and this is the blue scene sort of color scapes of the entire movie this movie's color scapes seem a little bit uh too even and they you know they do so many different locations but so many of those locations are similar and even like the sidewalk thing the sidewalk is just like uniform cement and they have uniform black asphalt for the street like modern day pixar would never make streets like this where they're just kind of like black asphalt the whole way they, they just paved it beautifully totally just paved with, it with, yeah with seven <laughs> layers of concrete they were chipping over each other i mean just look at the streets when they're going up the streets of san francisco and inside out i mean you can't blame them it's a, it's a long time ago but that's one of the things i was struck by seeing it now is i didn't none of these things occurred to me when i watched it i was just marveling at how much better it looked than toy story one but now that we've seen where they've gone from here especially Toy Story 3, which is these same characters with just such a higher degree of difficulty. Um, so I, I noticed that. But on the flip side, we're talking about the uh, how tight the movie is. I noticed that like this is like a, 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 a prime era Simpsons episode where the density of good, clever oh, yeah. jokes is just so massive. There are There are so few dud lines, and every one of them is like, Someone cleverer than me wrote that. Oh, they're clever. Oh, they're still clever. Oh, damn them. They're clever. Mm-hmm. And then just one <laughs> after the other. And like Merlin said, visual gags, puns, plain old jokes. They go back to the same well three times just to show you we we, we didn't narrow it down to one joke. Three of them are good enough that we can fit them all in the same movie, which is basically the same joke. And you'll laugh at all three because that's how good we are. Really great writing on this. Also, uh, we'll, we'll get to it when we go through it, but... Uh, some sly pop culture references, which, you know, I always argue what separates <laughs> Pixar from your DreamWorks animation a lot of the time is that DreamWorks is sort of shamelessly pandering to the pop culture of the time references. It's more like a Saturday Night Live sketch reference. The ones here feel a little more timeless, but also quoting, you know, quoting films and quoting shots from from films and things like that that are maybe a little bit well, like, like, it's like he's quoting Forrest Gump. I mean, come on. Mm. That's pretty great. Yeah, I mean, Forrest Gump actually felt felt kind of dated, but the, they they can reference Star Wars all they want because Star Wars, of course, is timeless. Forrest Gump felt a little bit, you know, a little bit contemporary. Well, but they they uh, share a, they share a star, and that's funny. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Although it's toned down, I would say a little from the, the first one where they actually make a hockey puck joke, which is <laughs> literally he's pushing it a little bit. The guy. All right, let's get started with the beginning. So, so I have a little bit of trivia, which is this film came out about a, almost exactly to the day, a month before Galaxy Quest, um, in which Tim Allen plays a very similar character to the one on display here at the beginning uh, as Buzz Lightyear in his adventure. The Also, the the uh, opening credits sort of remind me of, yeah, it's a combination of like Superman and, 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 and some of the latter Star Trek movies of the of the period and and galaxy quest ultimately which wasn't out yet um and there it's definitely a mix of especially star trek and star wars the music at the very beginning is such a riff on star trek 2 it is undeniably a riff on the on the theme from star trek 2 um and then there's also a bunch of star wars stuff in there especially as they're panning around uh, you know with the with the star fields in the background um it's in the gamma quadrant which has a nice Star Trek feel to it as well. Um, there's just, you know, and, and it's a surprise, right, for all of us. We're, we used to be seeing deluded Buzz Lightyear in the first movie, and here we see Buzz in his environment because uh, he, we're watching an outer space adventure of, of Buzz Lightyear, who, whose laser, by the way, is the sound of a TIE fighter 
firing because the same found sound effects editor worked on both Star Wars and Toy Story. Right? And he ben sounds Bird. awfully Vaderific when he's got his helmet down in this scene, too. Yeah, they do the Vader breathing. Yeah, And the, the best thing about this opening, this is true of any time you see this type of thing in a Pixar movie or any other kind of movie. It works best when you can tell that the people who did this opening love the source material. Yes. The people who made this are not making fun of Star Trek or Star Wars. They love Star Trek and Star Wars. And, and when they're going to do the flying shiny letters coming at you in 3D, they're going to make them... Like they they would do no no worse a job if they had been actually on a Star Wars or, or a Star Trek movie. Like they're gonna do that good a job. They're not gonna like wink at it and just do enough for you to get the joke. They're gonna say if you hired me to do to do the opening for Superman or Star Wars or Star Trek, I'm gonna do exactly as good a job. Like dead serious because that's how you sell the joke and that's that's why it's delightful as opposed to oh I see what you're doing. You're trying to like pretend it's Star Wars, but it's clearly not. Uh, the the level of uh, the level of dedication and, and the, the how clear it is that everyone making this loves the original materials is what really sells these gags. I don't you know. So this this film also came out um, a few months after Star Wars Episode One, um, and I mention that only because there's a there's that shot where uh, Buzz uh, redirects the laser through the crystal and it blows up all of the robots simultaneously. And I thought that's a very Episode One thing to have happen. <laughs> Where it's the easily killed robots, and I realized that you know that they were basically being made simultaneously, but that made me laugh because it felt like it. And then I looked it up, and I was like, "Oh yeah, nineteen ninety nine. Look at that." Except in this, it was a joke, <laughs> and it was actually it was actually a video game. Yeah, it turns out. Um, oh, also, we get to see that when Buzz is running down a dark corridor, we get to see his glow in the dark strips. Another, if yep. anybody ever had a glow in the dark character as a kid. <laughs> I had- I had to explain that to my kids. I had to explain many gags in this movie to my kids, which made me feel old. Mm. Like, you see, when I was a kid, we had toys that were glow-in-the-dark, and you exposed them to the light, and then it, they, they were not impressed. Although we did see some of that in Sid's room in the first movie, so. But it's yeah. good to see it again, because I really liked it in the first movie. Yeah, it's just, it, it's a laugh-out-loud little moment of, of Buzz putting his glow-in-the-dark stuff to work. Um, he jumps across. Okay, so th- there's something else I wanted to mention that's, that's very old school is... Um, I used to play on on PS One. I played uh, Crash Bandicoot, uh, which was a fun platformer, and the and and it, it reminds me so much uh, uh, this uh, this scene of of that game in particular. Um, but platformers in general, as Buzz and we don't know yet that it's a video game, but Buzz has got the little things he has to jump on. He is he is doing a platformer here in this in this cinematic style, but it's a platformer. And uh, there's even in Crash Bandicoot, there's even a uh, you know a 3D style rendered floating battery that you have to get to. So it was very it really brought back memories of playing video games in the 90s. Although in this, I think the fact that it's a battery is a little weird because. Why would the video game treat the characters as if they were toys? It's a, it's a what do you call it? In-game advertisement because you see the brand name of the battery. So that, that's how they get paid for the games. So, and, and, that scene and the 2001 music. The little discs to jump on. Yeah. Yeah, no. So the 2001 music, this is something I just picked up this time, which is my ninth or tenth viewing of this movie. So the 2001 music, we all get that gag. He jumps on the little squares. It does each note of that or whatever. Uh, that, that Also Sprock Barathustra, yeah. yeah. Richard Strauss, right. yeah. What I noticed this time is when he enters this room, it's like a mechanical room. There's kind of like mechanical background noise of just mm-hmm. like churning, I don't know, fans or something or whatever, kind of uh, pulsing uh, uh, metallic me- uh, mechanical noise. That noise slows down to become the same as the lead-in drums to the to the, the first few notes of him stepping <laughs> on it. So like if you if you play the original, like of course the notes line up because they're doing the note. That's the gag. But before that, the ambient room noise 
pulses in rhythm to the like the big bass drums that bang before that and i someone sweated over that because that is clever and it's subtle enough that i'd seen the movie 10 times and didn't even notice it but when you do notice you're like now that's attention to detail Mm. and and it's better than just like putting in the drums you know like just i'm just going to start the song and put in the drums because it you know you know most people don't get the gag i certainly didn't the first 10 times until they hit the first note right but they're they actually did the details up to that try watching that scene again and just appreciate how much these crazy people spent (laughs) on every single nuance of this movie this week's edition of the incomparable is brought to you by the good people at harry's harry's makes shaving products and i've actually been shaving with harry's stuff for a couple of years now um i always used to use for a while i was using an electric razor and also kind of uh, another razor to and then the electric razor broke it was a whole thing but when i got my first sample kit from harry's i really fell in love with it and i use it uh every time i shave which now that i work from home is not always every day sometimes it's every other day but um i you know i've become a believer in harry's after using the product and seeing uh, the quality of it uh the blades are very sharp they provide a close comfortable shave their uh their shave cream is uh wonderful with a little mint smell it's it's great uh and harry's background is amazing too these people bought the factory in germany where these high quality german blades are manufactured uh they're eliminating all the middlemen you don't have to go to the drugstore to buy your harry's stuff uh it's pretty amazing they came out with a a new limited edition shave set with a, a black handle a razor stand which i love the uh the stand lets you uh set your razor upright um it's a little uh, chrome block. It's pretty cool. Um, you get the foaming shave gel and three blade cartridges plus a travel cover. This shave set is $40 and comes in an awesome giftable box. But there are a whole bunch of different shaving sets at different price points to get you started with Harry's starting at only $15 so you can get one and check it out. And I think you will not buy shaving equipment at a, uh, a regular drugstore ever Again, five German crafted blades all in one amazing little razor enclosure. It's got a flex hinge. It's got a lubricating strip. The quality is guaranteed. Gives me an incredible, close, comfortable shave. If you don't like it, you get a full refund if you're not happy. $2 a blade or less, half the price of the leading brand. So go to harrys.com right now. You'll get $5 off your first purchase with promo code SNELL. So don't wait. H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter code SNELL, S-N-E-L-L, at checkout to get $5 off. Thank you to Harry's for sponsoring The Incomparable. This is the point where we also reveal that this is a video game. It's being being played by Rex. And it's revealed with the rather brutal sight of uh, Buzz Lightyear's whole torso being blown <laughs> apart. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was um, we were t- I was talking to my daughter. We watched it tonight. And I was reminding my daughter that when she was however old, three, when we watched that, whenever, as soon as she started hearing the music John just referred to, you, and they do that that little like not all, uh, but they turn the camera and you see Buzz about to walk across little lozenges, and she would always say, "Fest over, Daddy, fest over. We got to get past this part." <laughs> and then when when he when Buzz turns into legs with a little turd growing out of his pelvis, yeah, car- that's cartoon it. Cartoon violence, yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of horrifying. I mean, these are it characters is that we love, yeah. and we it's don't know at this point that this is because you do, like if you're just a kid, you're like, "Wow, I love Buzz Lightyear, and he's having an adventure." And, ah! I can see a lot of kids in the theater bursting into tears at that point. I mean, they pull back pretty fast. So they save you within like milliseconds, then you cut away to Rex. That's enough for a kid to freak out, though. That kid's going to be thinking about that for the next 15 minutes. 
I couldn't remember. Um, so the, I think this is only the second time I've watched it, and I couldn't remember what the setup was. I was like, "Is is this Andy watching the show or or what?" And then that that thing happened, and I was like, "Holy crap!" And then it cut away. And, but but you know, even I had this moment of like, "Oh my god, what is happening to Buzz?" Um, and they do it really well, but they do that cutaway pretty quickly too. So I'm wondering about test audiences. It does seem like they're lingering on the turd for a long time just because it is so shocking. <laughs> well, that's it's a, you have to be on it long enough to get the gag. Like you need right, that's yes. the, is, it, is it steaming? I believe it's a steaming. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, there's, there's magic smoke coming out of it and everything. Yeah, yeah, that, that's also, no good. You don't want that. With more Star Wars sounds like when he waves his hand through the uh, the battery hologram, it's a lightsaber sound. Like I wonder if they they have to have to get a license from Skywalker Sound. Like they're, they're not just simulating. Skywalker did do the sound for this, but yeah, I, I know what you mean. Hey, video game nerds, is that an NES controller? It's supposed to be an SNES controller. There actually is an SNES on top of the television later, like an accurately rendered one. But that controller is like a color scheme mismatched (laughs) weird Mm -hmm. SNES controller. Um, And also, like, when Rex makes one of his many short arm jokes that he can't, you know, shoot and, and jump at the same time, he implies that in this game, jumping is up on the D pad, and that's a terrible control scheme. And also not very realistic. This is the first of the short arm jokes, by the way. They completely <laughs> avoided it in the first movie. I know. And they all work. It's like they were kicking themselves. God, we well, you know, it's, it's an old chestnut. It's a classic. Mm-hmm. You never get tired of the short dinosaur arm joke. Well, they find new ways to do it. Like, this is the, the most straightforward one. Like, he set, comes right out and says, because he has to set up the rest of the jokes that are going to be in the rest of the script. He comes out and says, I can't, my arms are too short to do whatever. Now you can, in the next jokes, you can do twists on it where you don't have to remind them what you, what it is you're referring to. All right. So the next segment of the movie is, um, we have, uh, we have cowboy camp. Uh, Andy's going to cowboy camp, uh, but he gets to play a little bit more. There's a, a TV ad for Al's toy barn. So we set up the fact that Al is going to be the nemesis here. Um, also Mrs. Uh, Potato Head is talking. It's the chicken man! Yeah. And Mrs. Potato Head's talking. And I'm like, boy, all the cast of Seinfeld, all the bit, bit players on Seinfeld are in this movie. Um, and uh, but but Andy's got a little bit of time to play, so he plays a a, a, a little make believe game where evil Doctor Porkchop is uh, going to uh, going to threaten Woody uh, with either shark or death by monkeys. Um, but uh, there's an accident and Woody's arm gets torn. I love this scene here where Woody has to choose whether Bo Peep should face death by monkeys. And the monkeys are seen lounging about on various Mr. Potato Head pieces. And the implication is that they have somehow horribly dismembered him. They're using bits of his corpse as furniture. That's not a choice. <laughs> that kid set up those toys pretty fast. Like all the combat soldiers were in ranks you know, mom says five minutes and that kid, that kid knows he's got it down to an art. Like, this is what I'm going to do. Doesn't even think about it. Just sets it up. He knows five minutes doesn't really mean five minutes. No, that's probably uh, true. Too. The, the, uh, that's not a choice thing I thought was funny and clever in that, like, uh, I don't know when this started, probably sometime before my kids were born, but, uh, telling your kids that's not a choice as a way to communicate to them that, that, you know, you, you can do a or B and they always say C like, I never heard that when I was a kid. But nowadays, that's the thing that parents say all the time. And in my circles, you tell your kids that's not a choice, right? So this is a kid in a movie saying that as part of his game, presumably because it's something that his parents say to him. I did love Shark or Death by Monkeys. 
Um, but after Woody gets his arm ripped, he gets very quickly by Mannequin Mom. <laughs> he gets placed on the top shelf uh, where it's all dusty and there's those uh, rings that babies play with and a magic eight ball. Um, and he's been shelved, which is the worst thing that can happen to a toy. And he discovers Wheezy the Penguin hiding between a couple of books up there as well. I have to point out here, too, just briefly... What kind of a crappy mom doesn't immediately bust out with a needle and thread at this point and sew up Woody's they places arm? They've got to go. They've got to go. They don't have time to fix the toy. Well, yeah. she can take it and sew it up before she lets him go. I think yeah, any mm. self-respecting mom would make that would make that move. She doesn't immediately say, let's shelve the thing and, and you can be disappointed for the entire time you're at camp. Yeah, I'm not a seamstress. And I was like, I could at least do a serviceable job on that in like three minutes. She's also pretty indiscriminate about selling all his crap while he's away at camp. Oh, she doesn't sell Woody. She's just selling the stuff that he doesn't like the baby toys. You, they don't well, she's indiscriminate enough that she doesn't remember that she that Woody's up on a shelf. Yeah, also, she's trying to sell Wheezy the Penguin, who's broken. Who wants a broken toy? Well, she tucked him away up there knowing that she was going to sell him when he had oh, left the camp. Probably. Good point. Good yeah, point. Mm-hmm. Probably so. That, that scene, that's another really uh, great thing that I remember uh, seeing the first time and enjoying again. When she takes Wheezy off of the shelf... Right, so this is they always play with they dance around <laughs> it's this the line expression of like, on his face, yeah. <laughs> and the fact that you know, so the whole thing is like the toys aren't supposed to. When people are around, the toys like sort of play dead and pretend that they're not alive. Mm-hmm. Right, that's the rules of the universe, but they they're always pushing up against the boundaries. Like the toys are sneaking around when people can't see them, and in this one, the mom takes Wheezy off the shelf, and as she takes him down, she squeezes him, and when she squeezes him, Wheezy takes that opportunity to say. Goodbye, Woody. Like, he can speak it out <laughs> briefly, because that's the little wheeze coming out of it. But yep. he, without the squeeze, no good. With the squeeze, genius. Mm. The, the, the banality of evil. Woody has a full Manchurian candidate nightmare at this point, involving playing cards and a garbage can that I, I really love for how, how weird and cinematic they want to be here. Because this is just, I mean, do you need a nightmare scene? And do you need to be this weird? But they, they do it because this is what they want to do here. And, and it's the ultimate horror of being on a shelf. Well, he falls through the death card. The Pixar detail on this one is that when the scene starts, of course, you don't know it's a dream sequence yet until you know it becomes obvious when it's like oh i don't want to play with you right but before that the toys are all playing cards with a deck of cards that's all aces of spades mm-hmm. so even, <laughs> even before you realize it's a dream scene it's got that messed up dream logic like that doesn't make any sense right and then when he falls through the cards i don't remember it's before or after they do a dolly zoom like a computer dolly zoom in the movie you mm-hmm. know it's just cinematic uh, trickery inside the computer uh going going above and beyond it's also a nice detail when he's in the trash can and you can see this the light shining through the ace of spades forming the little ace of spades at the base of the trash can again they're showing off their light abilities so the yard sale so uh, what happens is they're woody being a hero which is uh, you know again woody was kind of a jerk for part of toy story so here he is doing his proper duty as the, the leader of the toys they're going to rescue wheezy they're going to get him back so they they have a whole sequence um, where they where they they're gonna they're gonna steal him back. Um, this I wanted to bring this up philosophically. So they talk to the dog. They the toys don't act like toys around the dog. They act they they, they play. Woody plays like with the dog. But- easy easy Snell. I think this is my job. <laughs> We've been down this road before. And at one point, the dog <laughs> rolls its eyes at something that Woody tells him. Yeah, so this yeah. is what I want to say is apparently they can talk to animals and the animals understand them. And the animal can adopt like the jaunty walk of a silent movie when appropriate. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. Walk casual. Mm. Not, Not that, that casual. casual yeah. <laughs> so so but they do have the heist and he gets the he gets he gets wheezy and he kind of tucks him under the collar of the dog and they're they're headed back. And uh, second short arm joke here, he mm-hmm. says. I can't watch. Can someone cover my eyes? Yep. 
Yeah. But also, I mean, like just the virtuosity of watching that from afar and we're seeing the, the POV mostly from the characters back up in the room. You can kind of hear what's going on. I think the way they pull all that off is pretty terrific. And the way they're staging everything with the skateboard and all of that, like you're getting all of that and you're getting the toys narrating the whole thing, which and which is, you know, zinger, 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 like so fun. Well, and they handle Woody's broken arm very well. I mean, he's he, it's consistent, right? He does... You know, he's he's hanging on with one thing, the other the, the broken arm or the what ripped arm is dangling correctly pretty much throughout that entire scene. I never noticed anything wrong with it. It just it looks it looks right. And you you just kind of remember, oh yeah, that's right. He's doing this all with how brave he is. He's doing this all with a ripped arm. It gives him a rodeo look too, because he's got the you know how like uh sometimes you'll see in in, in like rodeos and stuff. For those who have seen rodeos, uh, you hold on with one and you're kind of like balancing your weight. The cowboy is with like yeah. flail, flailing his other arm around. And that's the look they give to Woody here. He's he's very cowboy like, even though we know it's because he only has the use of his one arm. It's a it's a nice effect. Mm-hmm. But so something terrible happens, which is that Woody is uh, Woody falls and is revealed um uh, and because he has to be still because of the rules of the universe. And uh, an Al from Al's Toy Barn spots him, knows that he is a gold mine and tries to buy him uh, for first tries to buy him hiding him for 50 cents. And uh, then the mom sees that that uh, that it's Woody and he's not for sale and she doesn't know how he got down there. So he then tries to offer $50 and she says, absolutely not, because she's a good mom and she knows how precious Woody is to Andy. And uh, then he breaks into the box. And steals Woody and and takes off because the chicken man is a very bad man. He is not a nice man. That chicken man. I hate that chicken man. He's identified as the chicken man by the toys. And he and he takes off and takes Woody back to his place. In his car with a license plate from the state of Tri-County. State of Tri-County. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed mm-hmm. that. I noticed that. <laughs> it's a yellow license plate with black letters that is that says Tri-County. And the TV station says it's the Tri-County area. So... I guess they created a joint license plate authority. Okay. Um, moving moving on. This is where Woody steps into a wider world and discovers that he's not just a toy for Andy, but he's a pop culture sensation and part of a line of toys, which I think is a really amazing leap that, the, that Pixar takes in telling the story mm-hmm. about Woody, where suddenly we discover that it's not just Woody. Woody is a Howdy Doody-like character who had a TV show in the 50s with marionettes and that he is part of a product line that includes Jesse the Cowgirl, Stinky Pete the Prospector, and his own horse, Bullseye. Um, and, he, and that there were, there were uh, cowboy crunchies cereal which i believe is like chocolate covered in it's it's really not good for you kids don't eat don't eat it and uh, woody's roundup was a popular tv show until sputnik came so suddenly woody is a you know he's not just some random cowboy toy he's actually uh he's got value to collectors and things that that he never he never realized because he was just a toy that was played with do you know his bullseye's got a Pluto thing going on? The Pluto goofy thing, goofy mm-hmm. talks and wear and wears clothes and like so. It, it's like the toy hierarchy is some toys are just like people. They talk like Rex, just you know, it's just like a person. Some toys don't say too much. Bullseye, bullseye is the Pluto. He's a horse. He's a horse. So he never says anything. He's more like, like an the animal, more, more more like a pet. It isn't a matter of humanity or being an animal because Muscle Guy and Gnome Lady don't talk either. Right. Well, they grunt, but you, you, mm. it's hard. It's hard to tell what, what where the intelligence is. But anyway, it, it's exactly it's. I can imagine a horse character in Toy Story that that talked and it would be fine. But that's not Bullseye. He he fills the uh, 
the kind of lapdog role. I also wondered why some of the other merchandise wasn't sentient because, I mean, it's not like it's just just toys with brain looking spaces um, because, you know, in the first movie, the the binocular toy, like they use that and it seems to have autonomy and mm. and stuff, whereas all of this merch in this apartment is just kind of all dead. So I'm yeah. wondering what makes like kind of what John was saying, what gives something, what gives a toy intelligence versus not, and what kind of intelligence or awareness does it get? I guess how much time they have to animate it. So it's basically budget, <laughs> budgetary concerns. Like, all right, we only have a certain number of animated characters with lines in this movie because that's what we can afford to animate. Well, Bullseye makes sense because Bullseye is Woody's horse. Right. So, so Bullseye is going to be a horse character. If he were a horse character that was, you know, in a story by itself or just a horse character that you bought off off the shelf – then he probably would talk. But no, he's he's Woody's horse. The skateboard doesn't scratch its nose or something. Yeah, but, but they do they do the juxtaposition a lot of uh, the toy has a voice that you wouldn't expect it to have right up to our great uh, intro line, uh, turn me around, bullseye, so I can see. <laughs> like, like, Stinky Pete would not have the, uh, you know, Kelsey Grammer voice. You don't expect that. That's the gag. So yeah. they could have had bullseye have, you know, a Cockney accent or something, but instead they went with the animal. I think it has to do with whether they're going to be riding that toy because at the, in the first movie, the remote control cars, the, they ride that around. And it, I think it'd just be awkward to have someone talking to you while you're riding them around. We, so we get uh, – so Jesse is Joan Cusack and Stinky Pete is Kelsey Grammer doing his best sideshow Bob. Don't trust Kelsey Grammer when he's animated. <laughs> um, although it, it does lead to some wonderful moments where they show the, the clips of the Woody's Roundup TV show. And you can see that he's doing one, he's doing one of those old prospector voices. And, and then Stinky Pete, the actual – Not very well, I should say. No, not very well. But no. he's he's uh, I've heard better, but he's just he is mortified by it because he's way too classy for that. I love that. I love bit. all the things but, about but that. But we, we you know you got to give it up for the production that they pulled off with showing on this old TV, showing this black and white TV yeah. show, and the way that they sold like the crappiness of the way the show was made <laughs> and like Woody's conversation with all the little creatures on strings, yeah, the little it's cardboard, little cardboard yeah. creatures. <laughs> Yanked off screen by string, one of them gets stuck, you know. Just the cleverness of the way all the strings work in that in that bit is is great. I mean, that all had to be rendered and, and designed as well, and it's it's so well done. Yeah, I also had to explain that to my kids, that there was shows like this, like Howdy Doody. This is the, this is not just made up for the movie, that this is a real thing. Not, not this specifically This is much less Woody, horrifying but... looking than Howdy Doody. Oh, I just, I have the movie playing in the background. I just uh, just caught the scene of when they're jumping off the roof and Slinky grabs his own butt. Come on. <laughs> so Warner Brothers reference. Yeah, it's interesting uh, when you see them jumping off the roof. The the sort of casual nature with which they all leap off the roof sort of diminishes how concerned they were when Buzz went out the window in the first movie. Well, that was an accident. They're just bungee jumping off the side of the roof. No big deal. Yeah, they're 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 ready, do this all ready the time. for it now. Buzz has been a, a big influence on them. I think there's a precedent. Yeah, yeah. I noted at this point that uh, that I I love Joan Cusack's voice in this. Yeah, it's so goofy mm-hmm. yeah. and mm-hmm. and it really shouldn't work, but somehow it totally does. Oh, absolutely! Like like you know, it, it, it's so perfect. Like just you know, that's funny, Bullseye. Like everything she says, it, it's so perfect. She's so she's so spunky and like you know, I mean, like I know we're being jokey on here, but like there's something really you know really moving about these characters that have been in limbo for so yeah. long. Yeah, and I mean, forty let's get years to, let, or so in yeah, storage. But let, let's get to what makes this so um, um, moving is that they never thought they were going to get to go anywhere. 
this guy go, shows up. They know him. He doesn't know them. Yeah. I mean, who, can you imagine pitching that at first at Pixar and going in and saying, like, well, here's the new thing. Like, Woody's actually this, you know, famous uh, franchise toy. And I think they, they, they pulled it off amazingly, not least because all the stuff that Tom Hanks does. And I've heard a little bit about how they shot these. Just, you know, uh, the Tom Hanks character as Woody just being being so blown away by all this happening. I thought that was an incredibly effective sequence. There's the moment where Joan Cusack... Um says, I won't go back in the dark that is chilling. Um, and I think Joan Cusack is perfect yeah. for this in some ways because she can be super sweet, Midwestern, adorable, and Jesse is that. But she can also have that edge where she can flip right over into now she's now she's freaking out. Now she's on the edge. And it and for Joan Cusack, it's perfect because she can she can do that exactly. She's she's got PTSD basically. Like she's she's you know what I mean? Not not to over you know state it, but like if you think about it, if you're going to humanize these things or anthropomorphize these things, like she's had a, like a, a very long time to ruminate on this experience of right. being completely shut out from that not being you know out there last time she was loved flower power was a thing right i mean oh, the meaning the, you talk about like finding finding meaning in life uh it's clear from toys that the meaning in life is to be played with and what we have here is uh a, a, a mint in box character who's literally never been played with and then we've got uh jesse who has had a, a a person to play with her in the past, but not for not for years. And she's been in the box for since the you know sixties or the seventies, and now it's the, the the mid to late nineties. So she's she is absolutely yeah. She's been in the dark. I don't want to go back in the dark. It's 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 horrifying in that way. And and Woody is supposed to be their salvation, but Woody would have to sacrifice himself and go to the toy museum in Japan in order to um, keep them from going back in the box. And then that's the question: is, is it any better being behind glass? Um, and then he would be leaving Andy behind. It's quite. It's it's almost. I mean, it's a very difficult uh, dilemma for Woody to find himself in unexpectedly here. Is it better to be have loved than and lost than mm. still be mint in box? I think is the question. Mm. Well, the thing they have to sell you on is why would and, and uh, why would Woody ever leave Andy? Because the first movie was also you know Andy and Woody together, and it's important to be with Andy. Why would Woody ever leave? And the the arm rip is what they they hang their hat on, and for, for the most part, it works because like, again, like everything is silly made up because they're toys but all the map onto real world things so like the audience is readily able to map be played with onto whatever thing that they desire in life and like woody's big thing is they're not, he's not going to want to play with me anymore because i'm a broken toy and so i can't take that i can't take that kind of rejection i can't go back to andy and have him shelve me that will be more painful than just not going back to andy and again we don't have arms that rip we don't have people that play with us or whatever but all those things map so easily on things that, that drive people in real life that they don't have to be particularly heavy handed. They do. They can do all the motivations in universe and mm -hmm. we accept them because they're in universe, but they map perfectly to things that real people want in real life when you're not toys. Well, for 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 Woody, be better to be in a museum whole than to be broken and put in the landfill when he gets back to Andy. Or, I mean, really just the rejection, the idea that Andy won't want to play with me anymore because I'm a broken toy. Right. Oh, that's right. You're broken. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to play with you. But like also to tease out the thing, I think we uh, we talked about this last time, but, you know, the to state the obvious for folks who, you know, have kids and stuff, like the toys end up becoming a strange proxy for parenthood. And that that's the part that tears your heart out is because even though you're talking about a child who grows up and gradually doesn't need a toy anymore – the emotional proxy proxy in a lot of ways is is parenthood where you're saying like no I, well, I, you know, you're not going to bring you're not going to bring me to college you're not going to bring me you know uh, on your honeymoon on your honeymoon thank god yeah <laughs> but like 
but yeah, right. But you know what I mean? That's that's to me that's that's where this starts. Although to I really plan on being terror. there for mine. <laughs> Just peeping through the wall. Yeah. Or wherever. Taking notes. Good job, sweetheart. Under the bed. <laughs> the actually I had a moment and and uh, this is skipping ahead, but I had a moment as a parent where I questioned the what happens in Jesse's story. Um, that we'll get to because I, I I thought that the, Jesse's Jesse's parents I, I can't believe that it, that nobody stopped her from giving away her beloved cowgirl toy like you you just you, you keep that keep that in the room something but they they let her they let her take it and put it in the giveaway it's like no no because I I have nostalgia for my children's toys now there are some of my children's toys that if they tried to get rid of them I would stop them because I love them <laughs> yep. because they my, represent their my childhood. Parents- did not have that nostalgia for my toys. So I think it's on a person by person basis, mm. you know, like, cause my, my parents got rid of all my stuff when I was distracted <laughs> by puberty and then even more of it when I moved out and just forget it. They, but I'm doing the same thing with my kids. Like they're little lovies from when they were little toddlers. They want to throw them out because I guess they're embarrassed by them or they don't care. You'll show them, Hey, do you care about this? No, never mind. I'm like, we're never throwing. <laughs> oh, no, no, that's right. <laughs> no, we have boxes of that stuff in our crawl space. Yeah, I still have the teddy bear that I slept with from the time I was, I don't know, I remember my mom giving it to me when I was like three because I was afraid of the dark. So she Mm. got me a teddy bear that would keep everything in the dark away from me. And like, it's still in my bedroom and I'm, you know, long out of the house and married and it's still pretty close at hand. And even sometimes when my husband is out of town, I'll I'll bring it down and sleep with it. <laughs> like, this is still a thing in my life. That would be so. the best Toy Story movie ever. The adults who keep <laughs> some of the toys around. What's their relationship like with an adult? Toy Story 5. My, da- my, my daughter finally made the connection tonight. I gave her the two stuffed animals I kept from my childhood, my two favorites, which is uh, like a, you know, a teddy bear and this dog that my parents got me when I was uh, in the hospital as a kid when I was two. And she made the connection. She turned around and she's like, oh, like Fritz the dog is is your Woody. And I was like, yeah, yeah it kind of is. And mm-hmm. like she, 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 she gets that connection. But, but to what I think Dr. Drang was saying, but you know, the thing is we develop a connection. Like there's this really stupid cup, this one of the, you know, like those rubber cups you use to like uh, wash a kid's hair when they're a little kid, mm-hmm. like that's still in our bathtub. And if my wife ever throws that away, I'm going to kill her because <laughs> I don't know why, but that's such a touchstone to me for this, for this older time. But like it to me gets straight to this point of like, we're the ones who look at that toy and go like, how, you know, how could you, how could you throw that away? Yeah. But you know, you know, the other thing is like, I guess again, repeating, but is that, you know, I think when you reach a certain age where you're wearing saddle shoes and like listening to records with your friends, you make strategic choices. Oh, sure. Uh, about mm-hmm. what you deliberately part with. Yeah, I, I'm not sold that she would give Jesse away easily, but I don't know if it's some crazy mom thing there. But like, I, you know, you do reach a point in life where you say, like, I've got to make a cut from this. I'm going to fill these boxes and get rid of that because that's not who I am. I cannot be that person. Yeah, she's, she's leaving the nest. Like she's pushing yeah. it away, but she's leaving the nest. Like it's kind of the same thing. You wouldn't probably, you would keep that through high school. Right. But when you go off to college, maybe it's still back at home. But when you come back from college and finally move out for good, that's when the box goes. Cause yeah. you're saying now I'm finally an independent person and I don't need this stuff anymore. Maybe so. Assuming you ever leave the nest. That's true. That's true. Which is happening less and less. Just have the have the honey room, honeymoon in the next room. It's time to talk about Cheetos, because <laughs> Al Cheetos. from Al's Toy Barn is a grotesque figure, mm-hmm. and I will also say, you know, we're we're playing it. It's it's Wayne Knight, right? So it's it's a uh, it's Newman, Newman, and uh, he we find him asleep with a uh, with his basically his hand in a bag of Cheetos in front of the TV at one point, and uh, 
it's uh it's 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 pretty gross cheetos dust is a little bit beyond their capabilities too it looks more like uh orange cement (laughs) didn't quite capture the essence of cheeto dust and at various times he picks up woody with his cheeto fingers come on i know i know you would never do that that. no collector would do that right (laughs) but uh but he does i guess that's what kind of a monster al from al's toy barn is he's that much of a monster well of course this is before the cleaner has come by so yeah. maybe he's figuring the, he's the cleaner you know, can, can cure the cleaner everything. will handle it. Radioactive yellow d- dust <laughs> on yes. Woody's arm. I'm trying to make something out of All it. Right. I, I, you know, I don't know. He okay. thinks of it as a challenge for the cleaner. He wants to give him something to yeah. really work on. Sure. <laughs> I met this guy who was playing chess with himself, mm, and I yeah, invited right. him to come but over. But he's really good at cleaning weird is the specimen ready for cleaning the rescue the rescue before we get to the the cleaning that we have the rescue operation that is continuing from the other toys there are there are many gags when they leave and there's uh mrs potato head loads some extra stuff into the back of mr potato head for the road um and then we get to the point here where they've where they all they're going down the street and and now they've reached up the other side of the street from al's toy barn so they have to cross the road to get to the chicken as they say and they do this in an extended sequence where they're inside highway cones slowly easing across the highway in some sort of a plan that is the worst plan ever (laughs) and they cause horrible (laughs) things to happen and i love this scene because it seems like Buzz has a whole idea of how they're just going to gradually close off, uh, close off various lanes and get across, and that is not what happens. And and it proceeds logically, like to the point where they get that little curve of cones, and the car like has to like make a turn, and it sort of makes a U turn back into the tra- traffic coming its direction. It's like that, I guess, is what would happen. Uh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. That's the beauty of the cartoon, though. Is it? It's like there's cartoon logic, and it follows cartoon yeah. logic, and it's hilarious. And it follows the logic strictly, um, and you get to see all the terrible things that happen that are capped <laughs> with the line. Well, that went well. Yeah. yeah the, the light pole coming down is the final. Uh, right, because the big concrete the things comes off the truck had ro- had and sl- rolled into it. Yeah. Slowly rolls, and they have that gratuitous moment where uh, Mr. Potato Head gets out of the way, but the 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 gum the is gum, there, yeah. and the gum yeah. sort of like peels off onto the concrete pipe as it rolls away and we don't see the concrete pipe after that but we see the the light the light stand comes comes back down into the street this is the one scene that isn't uh, in al's apartment or or a song that i remember very vividly from this movie because it is so well done mm. and um you know the 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 sort of inventiveness of the vehicular mayhem is all great. Uh, I love how kind of claustrophobic and tense the shots mm-hmm. inside the cones are. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I also love that Slinky Dog has his head in one cone yeah. and his butt in the other. That's a great. <laughs> you get the orange light in from the cones, so there's some lighting stuff yes. going on there. But you can almost feel the stifling heat inside right. of those things, and they all look very concerned, and it's it's great. But Buzz has a plan. That that's part of the thing that makes me laugh so long. Is he's like, "All right, ready, go, drop." Right? Like he's got a he's got all worked out, and it's a terrible plan, and it's not going to. You know, <laughs> well, but, I mean, it's, he, it's good. It's very clever in that if you're going to cross the road safely, orange traffic cones are the way to do it. But beyond that, beyond the basics of these these, what will protect us from cars? Orange traffic cones is basically the only thing. But uh, the arrangements matter, and they didn't really <laughs> didn't really have that. The drop is less a a protect yourself from cars as it is don't be spotted Hide from walking humans, around yeah. under traffic yeah, codes. Don't yeah. be seen walking. Yes, still to follow the rules. I feel an obligation here to to point out a, an error. Okay, in this, Uh-oh. and and it's and it's when the concrete sewer pipe goes off of the back of the trailer. How did I know? Shatter into a million pieces. No, no, that no, it, no, it would survive. The wrong end of the chain breaks. Yeah. The end of the chain that's on the side it rolls off of 
is the one that breaks. And cinematically, uh, that works. Yeah. Because you have, you, you have to see it break, right? You have to see it break and you see it roll off to off the edge. You want to, and they wanted to keep the camera in the same place while they're doing that. But it's the other end of the chain that breaks. Well, this movie is ruined. I thought you were going to tell us something about what we what we learned about what happened to the the uh, light the light pole, uh, given the the failure angle of the light pole when it lands back in the road. But well, yeah, why did it fall? Why does it fall forward instead of the other direction if the if the rolling thing hits it? But anyway, it, it falls that way because that's the gag. Yeah. I also hope yes. you have thirty five minutes on how access vents and elevators work. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, I got some questions about uh, the engineering. Yeah. Know. I could have pointed out that the trailer swings through too much of an angle too, but I accepted. All that. right. Could you really open a hatch over landing gear without setting off some sort of alarm in the cockpit? <laughs> this is all pre-9-11, you know. The, uh, the, yeah. the, it was a simpler time. Airplanes were different then. And we'll just abandon this dirty-looking truck in the white zone. It's no one Can that mind. ring of the of the string to land perfectly on the hexagonal bolt, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's a one-in-a-million shot, but you could do it. Yeah, finest hour, can do please. That. Yeah, lots of lasso practice. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be cynical. Uh, okay, so Jerry's <laughs> game is now here to clean your... Uh, to clean your uh, toys for you. The, the, oh my god! I, I love, love the sequence so yeah. much. <laughs> the little hat rack, man. Come on, the little yeah. hat rack. Is it really that that um, that simple too? That they had the model of the man from Jerry's Game, and so they he they had him, so they cast him in oh, the movie. It's not that they had the model; they they like that character, and so well, they put him. According in the movie. to the the Wikipedia lore, this was greatly reduced in terms of schedule because it was originally slated to be a direct to video awful Disney. Two sequel, mm-hmm. and uh, and at the last minute, somebody decided, hey, this is coming together really well. Let's turn it into a, a, a theatrical release. But oh, you have, only have nine months, and there's a little more to it than that. But basically, they did have to reuse a lot of gags from the previous film. They had to re- reuse a lot of resources that they had. I think they had some sequences they'd already animated. I, I got the feeling that was the joke. That was part of the wonderful joke in the bloopers reel was it felt like the stuff that she was sticking into the back of Mr. Potato Head felt like things that they had already used and <laughs> rendered in different things. <laughs> oh, that could be. They always do that. I mean, they're, they're, they're like it's like they were using assets when they put the Pizza Planet truck and, and the ball in every movie, mm-hmm. kind of, but mostly it's, it's for the Well, game. you know, the, the yeah. uh, riverbed uh, and the riverbed in the opening sequence is a misrender from uh, Bug's Life. Where they got right. the Z axis and they ended up keeping it, and they and yeah. they used it yeah. as spa- Space River or whatever it is in in that sequence too. So there's they, they definitely so they use the Jerry's game model, but he's got yeah, what a great what a great he's got a hat rack for dolls. He's got his whole system. He puts a little little the little yeah. bib little, on him, the little <laughs> dentist yeah. chair that he's in. Yeah, that that whole toolbox is just I <laughs> and the way the eyes the eyes roll around yeah. so exquisitely when he opens the drawer. I, I want to have this toolbox in front of me mm. and like meticulously go through it because it's just this fascinating little kit, yeah. little doctor's kit that he just takes around. And I don't know, it just it delights me to just watch it and see all of the things. Oh, the little piston engine that runs his airbrush. Spectacular. Yes. Uh. It's nice. Very steampunk. I like uh, I like all the perspective shots in here. There's a particular one where they're it's a reverse shot of Jerry working on Woody, and it's just this huge hand with this equally huge head behind it, and he's got his like tongue in the corner of his mouth, and it's just so such a great shot. It's so well animated. 
There's a Q-tip, Q-tip going on his eyeball. You oh, can't mm-hmm. and it goes from and it goes from, from yeah, it goes from um, matte to super shiny as he does it. Yeah, which he puts a little puts a little rouge on him. I feel like a real toy restorer would be very hesitant to put any sort of color. I guess he's a pro, you know, but like you really shouldn't be putting more color on Woody's cheeks to restore the original. You kind of don't want to. You know, that's dangerous. Though. This also has uh, one of my most obsessed over, like, unnecessary details in a Pixar shot ever. When he's going in to finally sew the arm back. I've talked about this elsewhere. And his, hand, his hand's shaking, yeah. His hand is shaking. His left hand is shaking. And then you see, he, and he goes in, he's, I think he's maybe sticking his tongue out. He's about to, he's got the needle. And then you see the shot from inside the sleeve. And there's these three big herky-jerky movements as he's sewing it closed. And, I mean... Like it, from from watching it in 1080p, it looks like every exquisite detail of like the threads that are exposed. It looks perfectly rendered in a shot that's got to be less than a second long, and it, it's it's gorgeous. And you're like, you nailed it. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. The thing I thought they were doing there with the, the shaky hand. The thing that always impressed me is that you know here's he's an old man. He's got shaky hands. Old men have shaky hands. He's going in to, to do his thing. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he goes, and so, and it's just perfectly smooth and yeah, clean. Because I love he's it. been doing it for his entire life. Even though he's an old man and he's shaky, he's been sewing dolls for, you know, 50 years. and just zoop, zoop, That's zoop. when his, his uh, yeah, his hands stop shaking because he, he has the confidence to do that. That's, I love that detail. Love it. And he threads the needle in one, right? Yep. Like yeah. he doesn't have to reattempt it, whereas... I'm not so good at threading needles. No, he's a surgeon. He is. He is. Yeah. That, that's. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to see that whole that whole sequence. It does bother me that he can cover up the uh, Andy on the boot in one stroke with a paintbrush, and, and, and that Woody can and that Woody can scratch it off. It's like what kind of covers this mm, paint yeah. and Why is it not adhered? Should have done so the well coat. Woody display only. Yeah, maybe. But what an effective shot! Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys are haters, but like, like there's something like so effective about that shot, though. And there's texture, like there's yeah, brush strokes. The, the and, oh yeah, yeah. Texture. Yeah. And you, yeah. Like, all it takes is that one stroke, and now everything's changed. Of course, we have uh, the tragic backstory is that you know the the, the cleaner guy also has uh, some mental deterioration I've seen with his chess playing. So we're trying to think about <laughs> sad fate. <laughs> it awaits. First, the first thing he has to do Cheers is go game. and he has, he has to go paint, paint over the name on his own boot. It's really a very yeah. sad story. Our, our toy friends have entered Al's toy barn at this point, which of course we know we know uh, Woody isn't actually there. But they, he's entered. They've entered Al's toy barn. One of the first things we see is an entire aisle, a wall of Buzz Lightyears, uh, which is very impressive. Um, and they're they're exploring the toys, so we get lots of gags in this sequence. Ham commandeers a car to drive them around. They see a Barbie beach party. There is a fantastic, uh, I think it's fantastic, Jurassic Park joke involving. Yeah, I had to yes. explain that to my kids too oh, because they've only seen Jurassic World. Oh yeah, I had to say oh, no. You saw the wrong one. Where you got the Tyrannosaurus Rex is coming up behind in the in the objects in the rearview mirror closer than they appear. Shot for shot, beautiful. Beautiful. Even when they transition into this scene, that like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Newman, not Newman, but Al. Al. Al sees Woody's. Oh my God, he looks like New. And they cut to Buzz in front of a big New sign. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. It, it, it by the this point in the movie, you're like, all right, I accept that. And they're they're blown <laughs> away by the fact that there's this wall full of buzzes. But uh, somebody points out that short sighted retailers didn't order enough Buzz Lightyear dolls oh, to meet Barbie. demand in 1995. That Barbie in her Barbie. in her tour guide. Yeah, yeah. That is that yeah, is a tour. very specific reference to what happened when Toy Story became a big hit, which is they didn't mm-hmm. have enough uh, toys of Toy Story and Buzz Lightyear to meet demand. And then they show them overcompensating. And now there's a million of them. Yeah, a whole aisle of just Buzz Lightyear. But he's got a belt now. 
which is awesome. Oh, and Buzz gets tied up inside by by a, a Buzz Lightyear who doesn't know that he's a toy. Gets tied up with those little twist ties that are awful that you have with to the do. Twist to... ties. Those are yeah. spectacular. Ugh. At least he at least he wasn't screwed in. The irony of this one is really really tough for me because the Christmas of 2010 was one of our blowout awesome Christmas. Why do I remember 2010? It was the year of Toy Story three, and my daughter got a Buzz Lightyear and a Woody. It was a fan. She got a kitchen. She got all this great stuff. What she, you know, what you know, what my daughter remembers about about that entire. She remembers me the first time. She remembers me ever saying the F that, that's word. That's when Daddy get, got mad. The Christmas Daddy got mad. Yeah. No, yeah. she remembers. It was the first time she remembers me saying the F word. Was me trying to get Buzz Lightyear out of his goddamn box. <laughs> it required a screwdriver, wire snips. Yep. It, I think I had a drink. It, it, it was like a, it was like a one hour thing to get this goddamn toy out of the box. Yep. And I'm all and, like, and the wings send, break off anyway. <laughs> Bressa, Bressa, Snaggle Bressa. Yep. You don't want him to like you know tilt a couple of inches to the side in the box. No. That would completely ruin would the ruin display. The optics of it. So they so they end up picking up the the other Buzz Lightyear uh, while Buzz is trying to extract himself, which also leads to some humor because this Buzz Lightyear is speaking in the old Buzz Lightyear st- style. Uh, the line, especially that I wrote down that I enjoy, is he refers to uh, to Ham as the slotted pig. <laughs> slotted slotted pig. Well, well slotted pig. They're standard <laughs> issue. <laughs> Amazing. I like the fact that uh, you mentioned in the first in the first Toy Story, Mattel refused to give the okay for them to use Mattel toys in in that movie, and clearly they have had a change of heart as of the success of that film. Because not only are Take there all plenty the Barbies. of Barbies, but also the first thing she mentions on her tour is Hot Wheels yep. and the history yeah. of Hot Wheels. Yeah, I imagine that the negotiations between Mattel and and Pixar were spectacular. I'm using the word spectacular too much here, but we're very detailed in in what how they portray Barbie because Barbie yeah. comes off as you know kind of a ditz, but but really she's she's got an iron will, and she comes off well I think in this, and that that that's the that has to be Mattel's doing. Well, in the credit sequence though, she's revealed to be putting on a show in a way that it is burdensome but then also her final bit is she cracks back into her character which is like well she actually is very bubbly but that's e- right even if even if you are very bubbly right. it's hard work but to tour, tour guide is her job tour guide barbie in specific but we we also see that there are all the other barbies she gets tired out from smiling but she doesn't she doesn't break break bad on anybody right she's not mean yeah uh, that's true you know when she when she's finally off camera and she's very professional when she's driving. I, yeah, I agree. I, I, it would have been fascinating to see how they negotiated or what the approval processes were for what they wanted the wanted Barbie to do in the movie. At the same time, it is very obvious that they realized we made a horrible mistake in not having our toys in this celebrated film about toys coming to life. And perhaps we should play ball this time. And so, you know, I, Pixar had that leverage going for them. Of saying, you know, you actually do want to be in this movie, don't you? And and I think the movie is richer for having more brand name toys in it, actually, because I think that they there are lots of gags you can play. I like the rock and sock 'em robots joke too, where they they try to reason with them briefly and then they get angry and they punch each other. It's just great. It's great. Okay, so they go. This is the point where they go. Uh, oh, it's it's time. Yeah, yeah. we 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 it's learn time. Jesse's story. Why is Jesse? Why is Jesse so upset? And we discover 
Uh, Jesse had a girl named Emily. She was just like Andy. It looks like, you know, I, I, originally I was thinking 60s. I think it maybe is like the early 70s, but it doesn't mm. really matter. Uh, it was a long time ago. And, uh, and, and, uh, they were, and, the, and we get the Sarah McLaughlin song or it, she sings it. It's a Randy Newman composition. Um, and this is when she loved me, which is, it all begins, uh, as this loving relationship between a little girl and her doll. And it ends with her being, uh, kind of ignored as the girl grows up. And cause nail polish is more interesting than toy cowgirls. And then ultimately, she's finally reunited with her, and they get to take a car ride. But it turns out she's being taken to be put in a donation box. And it's very sad, and the room gets a little dusty. This is the scene that both makes the movie for me and atones for Randy Newman's crimes from the previous film. (laughs) (laughs) Everything in this sequence is so perfectly pitched to tug at the heartstrings. Honestly, for me, I think it actually rivals the masterpiece that is the first 10 minutes of Up. Hmm. And just like that scene, I can watch it over and over again, and every time I end up blubbering uncontrollably because it is yeah. so sad. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all of the sadness of, of childhood coming to an end, all of the, the pathos of people sort of drifting away from each other or falling out of love, all of the pain of being forgotten and left behind, and it's all packed into two and a half minutes. Yep. And it is so... So heartbreaking that that last that last shot of Jesse's right. shocked eyes peering through the hole in the box as Emily drives that's, away. That's, that, that's it right there because yeah. that 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 is it's so horrible. A, a lesser uh, filmmaker would have had Jesse doing what crying. A lesser filmmaker would have had Jesse like like being sad. Obviously, she's sad, but you're right, Steve. She's shocked, shocked, and that's that that that's the thing that kills you. Is she's like I, I can't believe you're driving away. And the indifference of, of Emily. Emily is not, you don't see Emily's face even. It's just like, no. Emily is just going about her business. It's just, it's how can you, especially like the, the part where she's in the seatbelt with her driving. Uh, and she thinks it's back to old times, but Emily doesn't think it's back to old Emily's yeah. not holding on to her. The yeah. tire swing is in the background. The first scene that that's a callback to where she's she's riding along with the doll. She's right, got she's her holding on her the doll though. and she's yeah. stroking it. Yep. And in this one, the hand is very clearly an inch or two away. Mm-hmm. Oh, so good. So good. I got to take a knee. It's 1999, and I have a 10-year-old daughter. And I went in to see this movie uh, knowing a little bit about it, but not knowing this scene was coming. And I spent this whole time not trying not to cry because that was on that. No, that was out. That was out. Yeah, that failed immediately. I'm trying to pull myself together (laughs) and not make sobbing sounds out loud (laughs) while this is going on. Because this is not only, you know, my daughter is on, you know, is is Emily right now. And, you know, not only is she going to leave all of these toys that she's been playing with, she's going to leave me. She's going to leave, you know, every, my whole life is going to fall apart because she's growing up. And, um, you know, and, and I should just die. That was, that was basically <laughs> this movie. And that's why I have not seen this movie since 1999. Yeah. It just tears me up. Thinking about that song uh, makes me cry a lot. As the only child of a single mother, your words are not reassuring to me right now, who, who moved 500 miles away. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it's very sad. You're a terrible monster. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you do this time with it? This t- I cried. Yeah, I cried. I was by myself. 
Uh, but, but yes, I, of course I still cried because I was remembering what it was. And plus my, uh, my daughter uh, came home for this weekend. Uh, she had, she has time off. My, my daughter is 27 now. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, here is, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting in the basement watching this movie and, uh, you know, I, again, I wasn't loud enough so that, you know, my wife didn't hear me crying upstairs. I'm sure she knew I was crying. She knew I was watching the movie. Yeah, it goes with it. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, oh, my God, it was terrible. I'm so glad I saw this originally before I had kids because... <laughs> you, you had one chance to, for it not to slaughter you. I mean, yep. it's still, it still broke me, but it broke me in a different parallel way. Well, it might inoculate you a little bit before no, it, it, it. No, I got no. to see it because uh, just like Steve, I mean, we didn't have our first until two years later. I got to see it the first time thinking about myself as a child growing up right, and my right. toys yep. and all that. You identify as the child before yeah. you have kids, and then when, when you're then when you're a parent, you identify both sides of it, and there's no hope for yeah, you at all. Exactly, but that's that's what makes this such a perfect perfect representation of what Pixar does so well, which is to have something that's meaningful to the level of the child and to the adults. Yeah, and and yeah. this is I mean this is amazing in that a, a fairly young kid will will see this and go, oh wow, I'm growing up, and I, I forgot about that toy I had, and and they'll be sad, and then mm. the adults, of course are depressed about it on a completely another level. I hope everybody likes this sad song because they made an entire movie of this called Toy Story 3 that we'll talk to at another time. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Save it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, my, my, daughter, my daughter turned uh, to me tonight and she was, you know, getting a little bit of dust in her eye. And, and she said, oh, well, you know, at, you know, at least, you know, she'll, uh, she's getting donated. She's getting adopted. She was trying to cheer, cheer me up because I'm sitting there <laughs> like, like, like blubbering day of the doctor style oh, no. know, on the couch. And it's just like, but, you know, this is also like not to delve too deep. But, you know, I think that this is a funny thing. This is a dumb parent thing. But a dumb parent thing that happens is like you even get this maybe late high school into college where you start. Uh, there's all the things you grow up reading or watching, thinking about with like, oh, you know, Harry Chapin style crap about, oh, this is all going to be really funny and ironic one day. But eventually you do reach a point in life where you go like, oh, it's very strange to be the child and the adult and eventually the parent. And so there are things that hit you on multiple levels that are very hard to process. So watching that scene, I don't overstate this, but you can watch a scene like that and see yourself as so many different tragic characters in that scene and it makes it kind of overwhelming to process i was the tire swing oh, no. <laughs> when when you when you only saw one set of tire tracks oh, yeah, that's yeah. when john was carrying you man the way it's rendered is great too i mean i love all yeah. of the the oversaturated sunlight that that really only exists in memories mm-hmm. and uh i love that the hillside that they play on it has the appearance of spring during the happy times but as jesse is abandoned on the side of the road it's the reddish leaves of fall are on display and starting to come down from the trees. Their outdoor scenes still look a little bit like model train sets because like yeah. they're, they're just a little bit outside their abilities. And again, especially compared to like when they like when they do like the forest and brave or whatever, it's just or like the good dinosaur for crying out loud, how far they, they come. Um, and so I, I don't I don't think it was a bad idea to sort of overreach a little bit the way they did because that's how you make progress. But uh, going back to look at it, those ones, those scenes don't hold up as well. Uh, not that it matters. It's that. true, although in this case, I can kind of forgive it because it's supposed to be sort of a dimly remembered memory. It looks perfectly fine as you're seeing him through tears. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's it's just made all the worse when you realize that the, those flower power posters mean that Jesse's been packed away in the dark probably for 35 to 40 years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. Oh, God. Yeah. 
Let's uh, let's. Uh, oh, I wanted to say one thing about Randy Newman since Steve mentioned it. I actually I like Randy Newman a lot. Um, I think Randy Newman's music is at its best when it is scabrously angry or when it is extremely sad. I I think his bouncy jaunty um, ragtimey stuff is. I think he he does it well, but I don't like it, and it seems yeah. awfully easy and a waste of his talent. Kids love toys, and toys love kids. Unlike um, you've got a friend in me, which is a you know, it is what it is. Uh, and I like how what they do with it here, which is have it be a song on the TV show, Woody's Roundup. That kills me. But uh, When She Loved Me is a beautiful song because it is sad, a sad piano song. And I think uh, Amber Andy Newman is really good at that. So I, and this it is, is not sung by Randy Newman, Newman, which is also extremely good important. choice, yeah. right? Good choice. He would have ruined it. Yeah, I watched I watched Toy Story one before two today. And I was like, I remember how much I hated the mu- the music in Toy Story one and Toy Story two is so much better. Yeah, so much better. a lot of uh, orche- orchestral music for yeah. the, the parts that are supposed to be exciting and adventure instead of sort of having everything be kind of uh, silly Randy Newman songs under every uh, scene. And uh, it works better that like they save them for, you know, for the, the Sarah McLaughlin song or for the songs on TV. They don't. And the rest of the time, it's scored more like an action adventure movie. There is no montage song in this. Well, the Sarah McLaughlin thing is the, you know, that's basically... So, yeah, that's a good point. And the Randy Newman score, I think, is good. I I think that they chose a different tone for this movie, and they didn't... Look, they didn't know what they were doing with the original Toy Story. They were making it up as they go along, and and they got a a person who does scores to score that movie, and he scored it in a, a, you know, a very bright, quirky wacky kind of score and the score here is is not so much it's more restrained and i think that as filmmakers they wanted something different and they knew what to ask for and i think randy newman showed that he was up to the challenge in in this one and and uh and provided them with a good score and provided them with a really great song Although it's not a catchy song by any stretch no, of the imagination. No, it, I don't think if you heard it independent of the film, you would think it was much of anything. Because it doesn't really have a melody or any kind of a structure to it. But it's perfect for the scene. Absolutely perfect. Uh, all right. So we'll leave the, we'll leave the tears dry your, dry your eyes, everyone. Um, let's move on to Emperor Zerg. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, Zerg is chasing them across the, uh, across the street. He's been, uh, they escaped from the toy the toy barn because they realize now that they need to go get uh go get woody in uh, al's apartment i have questions about how the toy barn is run okay the door is <laughs> always open there right. are no employees around well, and those poor people walk they walk in but then they go directly to the back and never leave <laughs> the lights are never on well it's the it's it's before Al's open not there it's before before open uh, and they're the employees and they're doing stock stuff in the back or something like that is how i always did it now they should lock the door that is a huge security problem because yes, somebody yeah. could just walk in and steal some toys but uh that's that's why they don't I got seem at all bothered by the loud mooing that periodically interrupts right. their stocking activity <laughs> yeah, well. that's true. and like the, the the whole like the bouncy balls going all over like i know bouncy balls are kind of quiet but wouldn't that i mean there are things that i feel like should have called someone's attention okay i did one rat infested barn it makes sense i did wonder sometimes we're stock boys we're not paid enough to care that's i think that's exactly (laughs) also that's i mean it it, basically you know it's maybe it's supposed to read as a toys r us but it's not it's It's an independent Mm -hmm. toy store in what used to be clearly a grocery store it seems to me i think al's having money problems i think he needs this yeah he needs this to go and that's why he's so desperate. And I think we're 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 terrible monsters to be so hard on him. No, he's a monster. He's the real monster. Yeah. I hate that chicken man. The chicken man. <laughs> chicken man needs the money. It's, I despise that chicken. I despise that chicken. <laughs> I love it. But and also, I'm sure everybody caught this. But don't you love it when um, 
Ham is flipping through the channels, and you can see all Pixar shorts as he's flipping yeah. around. Yeah, yeah, Although the flipping, the flipping that kills me, because that used to be my thing. Back in the day when channels changed on televisions fast, I was a big flipper. I was all about the flip flip around. The oh, reason yeah. the around the horn around the horns because kids, you know, we did that, but... So it happened so quickly. We didn't we didn't appreciate it when we had it. The fact that we you know at first it was dials and there was nothing there except for, and you just had thirteen channels anyway. And then the the flicker and you could go through really really fast. And then we woke up one day and changing a yeah. channel took four seconds. Yep. And How's that work on your TiVo now, John? Is that is that as fast? No, now I just I don't. There's forward? no more channels. I just don't do <laughs> channels at all them. anymore because. Boy, flipping channels, that was my... Because you got to build up an, where I was a Viking, an MPEG-4 buffer, and it's just, it's not the no, same. Yeah, it takes a million years to just even tune in the next channel. It's like, it's, yeah. like, it's not worth it. Forget it. Yeah, it's true. Ugh. I love Zerg. I love that he, he escapes from his box <laughs> uh, to chase them because the, this is the, just... The look here, where you look in the back of his head. Oh, oh yeah, Zerg, that's so Zerg good. Vision. That's, that's a 70s toy thing, <laughs> yeah. not a 90s toy thing. Right. It used to be when you had a $6 million man, a Steve Austin $6 million man, you could look the through the back of his head. Yeah. Yeah. So they they um goofy Buzz Lightyear is uh recalling the uh the video game strategy guide that Rex found and it follows it to discover the vent in the shadows to the left just as you said. Yeah. I, I had to explain that to my kids too. They like before the internet you had to go to the store and buy a book to give you the hints on the mm-hmm. game. You couldn't just go to YouTube and watch people play through it. Lots of elevator gags in this section. They go to the elevator shaft and it says, "Why don't we just take the elevator? They'll be expecting that." <laughs> just because this is the this is the the uh delusional buzz light yeah <laughs> also in terms of animation the way the way <laughs> the jaunty way that uh the, you know uh buzzes is animated with, with his conscient je- gestures everybody's yep. exhausted and confused and he, but they he go along so with much it. yeah well but it's also great because he kind of says it himself like he's always what does he say i'm, I'm always right or something like that it's just, it's yeah. so perfect i'm, I'm always certain or always sure or whatever you know are you sure that great gag from the first movie, they find a way to, to, to bring it back. And it's, it's kind of a yes and thing where like you got new Buzz or excuse me, old Buzz who knows more about like his identity. And uh, I, I just think the new, that, yeah, again, another like what a smart thing. How can you bring back another character who's like you, but like in the other movie? So fun. Well, and you know, and apart from the belt, you know the difference between the two of them. You don't have to see the belt. It's, yeah, it's, animated it's very, like yeah. I said. it's very nicely done animation to distinguish the characterization of the two of the two buzzes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This, a lot of times he's got his uh, he's got his helmet on too, so there's some visual distinction there too. Uh, well, he can't breathe the air. Yeah, well, yeah, the hostile air. An alien world. That, that, that was yeah. a great scene where they they uh, you know they do the gag they do in a million things like yeah, you know which one is the real one? How many times has that been done in kids shows and movies or whatever? And they just take the air out of it instantly with the helmet gag and then mm. just put a stamp on it with uh, with the real buzz picking up his foot with the <laughs> his foot. Yeah, it's sort great. of the raiders of the lost arcing of that scene yep <laughs> the um this is this is the point where they reach woody just as woody has decided that he is going to show uh he, he's been talked into basically going to the museum and allowing them not to go back in the boxes again well, he, he heard the Sarah McLaughlin song too, you know. Yeah, he did. He was, he was, you know how close he was to it. He was in Ground Zero. Yeah, he he he's seen the movie. He knows what he's. And so he's confronted with his uh, eventual uh, abandonment by Andy. He thinks maybe going to the Japanese toy museum wouldn't be such an idea or a bad idea. But his friends arrive, and we get the scene where Buzz is giving Woody a little bit of a pep talk, and he says, "You're not a collector's item." You're a child's plaything. You are a toy, yeah. which is a callback to yeah. the first movie. Although I got to say, mm-hmm. it didn't work didn't for me. Deliver well. it it didn't, didn't deliver flat. that line well. They didn't deliver that line well. They needed a few more takes. Mm-hmm. 
That's right. Flat from Tim Allen there because I wanted the total uh, kind of freak out that that uh, Tom Hanks gives it in the first movie. But it's a great the, – the line before it I really like. You're not a collector's item. You're a child's plaything. This is the entire – philosophy of toy story which is toys are for playing not not for collecting not for salting away you want to play with them but they uh then they they kind of uh, argue it out I, i'm reminded again that sometimes woody can be kind of unlikable because he he can be he's unlikable in in this scene at the beginning he's cocky yeah we this is where we get you got a friend in me by the way too playing as they see the show which made me laugh the mean woody makes a reappearance yeah oh it's yeah i mean it's just that he uh he he has an ego and it can be stroked mm-hmm. He's on the border of mean here. He's, you wasted your time. Yeah. As yeah. his friends have come all the way across town to try and rescue him. They had to, like, if there's anything they could have done better is they really, you really needed to believe that Woody, like, this is all motivated by fear and insecurity of Woody not being played with. And they established that. But then later, it seems almost more like that's gone by the wayside. And now he's just filled with the glory of, like, look how important I was slash am. Well, but some of it's some of it's just because he feels bad for these guys that are going to have to go back into storage. So yeah, you know, again, it's not we, all bad. We can't repel feelings of that magnitude. He was he was like two inches away from her during that. Yeah. <laughs> he's the key to their freedom. But anyway, it's also revealed that the prospector is sneaking out of his box. He's not mint in box after all. Oh, You've been out it. of your box, and and he was the one who uh, hit the uh, remote. And right. has been conniving all this time, and now he he screws the screw into the vent so that they can't they can't get back mm. out to them. Yeah, and that, that that doesn't work. Doctor Drain isn't bothered by that. He screw he screws a what was a flathead screw with with a cylinder with the top of his pick exactly? his pickaxe. Uh, right, the top of no. his pick is a cylinder. It doesn't come to a, a wedge shape. Yeah, well, don't yeah. they on axis go to more of a wedge shape on the top? No, usually at the at the head of an axe, uh, you have a wedge. That pushes mm-hmm. things out. So in my head cannon, it's the wedge <laughs> that you drive into the hand, handle. Didn't get driven all the way down flush, so it's sticking out a little <laughs> bit, and that and that makes your your standard head screwed. They didn't model it. It's not on the screen. Well, it's head cannon. Trust John. me, it's there. Oh, God. How much <laughs> would it cost to get you two on a podcast all the time? <laughs> you couldn't afford it, Merlin. I know. I know. I know. For me, what's ruined here is the whole reason that Stinky Pete is such a butt is that he's bitter about the fact that nobody wanted a Stinky Pete to play with, so he had to watch all the other toys being bought. For me, this beggar's belief, because there's no way that young boys watching the intro to the show (laughs) where Stinky Pete has a pickaxe up his butt is not going to demand that mom go get the uh, the Stinky Uh, Pete toy. It's not that nobody wanted a Stinky Pete. It's just that, like, you never manage inventory exactly to match demand, and they... Like the least popular character is no matter how much people like him, he is going to be the least popular character. So it's not that no Stinky Pete sold, it's that he didn't sell. Well. Many Stinky Pete's next to him may have sold, but when that store finally closed uh, down, he was over two Stinky Pete's left on the shelf. Yeah. There were no yeah. Woody's left, and there's Inventory. no Bullseyes, yeah. and there's no Jesse's. I feel like the implication is that Stinky Pete in general was unloved, and I I don't think that would happen. That makes no sense to me. There's no way that pickaxe scene wouldn't have driven every boy to demand that he have a Stinky Pete so that he could replicate it at home. All right, they flee back to the elevator, and Zerg is there waiting, and we get a confrontation between Zerg and... Uh, and uh, new buzz uh, that includes a- a- the fantastic "No, I'm your father" moment. Um, that's amazing, and uh, I love it. And 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 Buzz and Zerg both Zerg falls like Alan Rickman in Die Hard off of the side of the elevator, which made me laugh. The slow motion shocked fall mm. as he falls down. I love that Buzz reaching towards him. I love Zerg. 
that's just so funny. Oh, me too. So funny. I I, I love his weapon and like how, how clearly Shoots the balls. Like uh, yeah, you know, just this ineffectual weapon. He has an unlimited <laughs> supply of these pointless balls, and it's, it's just so fun. Anyway, the Pizza Planet truck is waiting conveniently down below, and the toys can drive a truck. Did you know? It's amazing. It? I love it. All together now. <laughs> a lot of the things these toys do, again, bending the rules, like, well, people can't see them, but you're allowed, they're allowed to drive a car. Uh, seems mm. And they're capable of driving. I don't think their setup would have gotten them anywhere but, like, crashed into a hydrant, <laughs> is what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Well, they would have torn, they tore the clutch out. Like, I don't know how. It's just like, put it in gear, and they put it in gear, but you know they don't know what a clutch is. Right. You can get a car into gear without pushing the clutch down. They're very strong, uh, these toys. They needed, <laughs> I, I actually would have accepted the whole thing if somebody like Potato Head had just declared, like, uh, you know, I, I've watched, or, Re- or Rex maybe being like, I've done all the, uh, the the racing games. I can tell you what to do here. But instead, it just seems kind of, you know, I guess Buzz is giving directions and all that. But yeah, I guess you got to go with it. Also, the, the convenient placement of the Pizza Planet truck, you get a, you kind of get over it because it's a funny callback to the first movie and you accept it. And you're like, all right, fine. Whatever, the Pizza Planet truck. I remember it's that. It's a movie about toys that are alive. The, the aliens are, <laughs> the aliens, there are three aliens hanging from the from the rear view. That's great. We want to see those guys again. We get to, yes. more time with the, well, there's a, with there's the aliens. There's a great subtle gag right here, too, which is that, you know, you, we've seen them crossing the street in these apparently indestructible orange cones. Yeah. And the first thing they do when they get behind the wheel of the Pizza Planet truck is they immediately run over the cones yep. that they crossed yeah. the street in earlier. Uh, but they take the Pizza Planet truck to the airport where we have a chase uh, through the the baggage conveyor system, which is extremely complicated. I guess this is what we all imagine is happening behind the scenes at the airport. That's, that's what my kids asked me when we watched it again this time. Said, "Is that what it's really like back there?" I'm sure it is, honey. I'm sure it is. <laughs> Let me tell you about the TSA kids. <laughs> Yeah, it's weird that the door scene got so much attention in Monsters, Inc. when they had basically just done the exact same thing. Yeah, and this the one door scene is totally. cranked up much higher, you know, like a lot, ten times bigger area and people on them and flying around. But yeah, yeah it's still idea. the same deal, though. And the, the white zone is for loading and unloading only. Now they're calling back to 70s movies. It's like so totally made for parents and not kids. Yeah. yeah. Although I do enjoy the dad joke of uh, Buzz running around with the Butte sticker stuck to his that, butt. That, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a wonderful Is that a dad joke? I think joke. it's more of a kid joke. That's kind of joke my dad used to tell. Oh, explains a lot. <laughs> so they, cha- they it really does. They have to chase out onto the tarmac. Uh, Woody gets to ride bullseye, ride like the wind bullseye. I love it. I love bullseye. I love, uh, I love uh, Woody riding bullseye. Here, bullseye does the. He's got the big eyes. He does a. He does a kind of big like uh giddy up gallop thing at the beginning that it's just the whole design of of bullseye and how he and woody move on the tarmac uh i love it i love everything about it he's adorable he is so cute oh we, you skipped over stinky pete using his pickaxe to intentionally uh, dislodge some threads from woody which is ah uh, yes pretty severe personal violence mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of toy story it's true yeah he's he's threatening threatening woody with the uh, he didn't threaten. He, he well, takes the thing to him and pulls out a stitch. Yep, it's true. Bodily harm. Yeah. Yeah. Snitches get stitches. He also stitches. slugs Buzz and says, take that, space toy. Oh, there's something else I noted on this. Like, such sturdy filmmaking. You don't notice it when it's going on, but they just make sure that all their I's are dotted and T's are crossed. When they come upon the wrong uh, bag, the wrong suitcase that doesn't have, you know, because two green ones, and it has the camera flashes in it, they make sure one of the characters says... Uh, nice, flash, you know, though. Not, not, nice flashes though because they have to establish to the kids who have no freaking idea what the hell like an old reporter style flash is they have to establish that these are flashes if they don't say that the next scene when they pop up and use them to blind stinky Pete right. doesn't make any sense 
shows that people are paying attention and they're you know going over this every single line every single scene what works what doesn't what do we have to do here and they could have turned that into a joke and they didn't but at least they left it in there to just you know to make sure people know these are flashes so now that we know that once you put your bag on a cart it goes into a wonderland of conveyor belts that are incredibly (laughs) incredibly sophisticated that will take your bag to its destination the next thing we learn is when they're loading the, the bags on a plane, even if it's glass and says fragile on it, a guy just chucks it in and it shatters. And, it, and it's cavernous. This is like the TARDIS plane. It is yeah. way bigger on the inside. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> like how, how big do they think of the cargo area of plane? It's like a football field in there. And it's so sparsely populated. It's a giant cavern with a sort of a smattering of bags. A few that bags. Just loosely flo- that, that plane's going down as soon as it goes in takeoff. When that thing tilts up and the weight, the w- whole weight in that plane shifts to the back as the suitcases all tumble down. <laughs> and it's going to Japan. You would think that there would be more luggage in it if it's going j- to Japan. Mm. <laughs> Maybe it's a connector flight. Maybe it, it, it I don't know. Um, but they, uh, they, they, anyway, uh, Woody uh, escapes with, uh, with Jesse out through the, door because they get locked in and the the plane is taxing but they they pop open a like a hatch that gets them down onto the landing gear and then from there they they jump down uh and because buzz is there and uh and and they're they're saved hooray they don't have to go in the plane to japan boy al from al's toy barn is going to be really upset when he discovers that the airline lost his luggage but we don't need to see that scene, thankfully. No, we don't. No. I assume it was... I hope uh, he insured it. I hope he insured it, but he's so sad in the last scene of the movie that I guess he didn't. He was too busy shouting, don't touch my mustache, into the phone. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, they have to get back to Andy's house. How do they do that? And the answer is they apparently take a luggage cart, like a, one of the, from the tarmac, and drive it back because it's parked across the street later. Um and th- there's a shot of the people across the street being mystified about why it's there that I like because they had to explain how they get back there. And they say it was to the end of the scene to explain it. They don't. It's not linear, so it's a nice. Uh, like you may have thought we forgot about uh, st- trying to explain how these toys got back, but we have a no. gag for that. And we'll see people reacting to the fact that there's this luggage cart parked in front of their house, which is which is funny. Buzz is is putting the moves on Jesse here at the end of the movie too. Yeah, what's up with that? Yeah. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. Well, you know, Woody is with Bo Peep, so... He even gets his little wing boner. They're a perfect couple. They're both they're both uh, toys of action. Yeah, no, that's true. Okay. He's impressed with her way with a with a car and a loop track. I just feel like Jessie needs some time. She's been through this traumatic event. <laughs> she really yeah. does. Well, it's been 30 she, years. It's not you, Buzz. <laughs> it's me. I need some right. time. Right. I just need... Some need space. To... Well, they they do the great gag with his wings popping out, though. So yeah, yeah. oh my Always end on a boner yeah. joke, John. It's classic filmmaking. Uh, Andy finds the finds the toys, and and it's like, oh, cool! I got more. I got more cowboy toys. Cool now. new toys, which is the great sort of entitled attitude of, of today's spoiled youth that we all spoil. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool new toys. I don't know how these get here, or where they come from, but I deserve new He's toys. He's got his modern sensibility with these old fashioned toys, so he comes up with a whole storyline for them that is nothing to do with Woody's Roundup, right? Because he doesn't know anything about that. He just casts them in whatever roles he wants Woody and Jesse and Buzz to be in, and and that's what he does, which is great. Yeah. Oh, he has a vivid imagination. You got to keep the nightmares away somehow. Mm-hmm. I, I've tried to catch my daughter in her sort of imaginative play, and she does such the same things. Like, it doesn't matter what toys you have. The, the roles they end up in are just yeah, totally out there, things you would not uh, even consider uh, reasonable or plausible. It's tough to catch her, though, because she sees you. She stops. Yeah. But there's a realism to that. That is definitely – those are definitely observations from parents. 
uh, that you're seeing there. Yeah, I, I have wondered though. At what does Andy ever say? Hey, mom, I these toys are cool, or did she see them and think, "Oh, wow, that's weird," or is she too yeah. busy? Being Where did those toys she come assumes from? they yeah, came from like, Cowboy Camp, and he never mentions it. Okay, that's what I am declaring. <laughs> Okay. But he, he threw his perfunctory thank you there, and that's all he has to well, say about it. The, the one of the more unrealistic, well, at least in my life, my unrealistic things is how neat Andy's room is in general. Mm. And I know if new toys showed up in my daughter's room, I have no idea because I can't even see the floor in there. <laughs> <laughs> I feel a song coming on. Wheezy's been fixed miraculously and now sings like Robert Goulet. And then he sings a loungy version of You've Got a Friend in Me. And we go off to the credits the with the blooper reel. reel. Yes. Anime, I love including, the blooper uh, reel. Good stuff. Although I'm not sure whether I find the uh, the big song at the end more dissatisfying or the puppy yeah. boing more yeah, dissatisfying. They, 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 hadn't nailed the, they hadn't nailed the endings quite yet. I, I find this better than the puppy ending um, because it's actually we get the you know we get the re- resolution of Wheezy and it's very unlikely. Um, I don't love it, but but I like it better than than the puppy. Oh! <laughs> Kind of. yeah, I think they're both in the same vein. And then a musical number, yeah, whatever. And and on the, oh, but what about this? It's like, it would have been worse if they said, oh, what about Puppy? And then Toy Story 2 was about the puppy. That would have been terrible. But it's not, it's well, just but, an ending game. But you know what's, what, what's funny is that, like, you know, God, I don't know, this, this, I, who knows how long this movie will affect me the way it does. But like, yeah, I got pretty sniffly during the, the Jesse scene. But the other one that made me, I don't know, like strangely moved is uh, <laughs> when uh, when Woody says, uh, what, whatever happens next, we'll be together, you know, to infinity and beyond. Yeah. Like there's something really sweet about the friendship message of this. And, you know, the, the, that's the thing about Woody is that, you know, we didn't talk much about this here, but like, you know, he's a very privileged doll. Like he's Mm -hmm. had this, uh, like this world of affection his whole life. He's been like the alpha doll. And like, and so finally when he's outside of that environment, yes, he finds out that he's a superstar, but he also discovers that there's a world outside of what he knew. And so he's kind of applying, (laughs) probably over reading this, but the way that he's applying the empathy that he has about Andy to other, these other uh, new toys he didn't know about is is really sweet, and then when he gets back home, like that just like you know rebonds him to all these other people, and I, I love that part. Yeah, and that was a, that was a good ending to the Infinity Beyond in, in an affecting way. Tom Hanks gives good line readings on all of his stuff. He's he's great. Like I feel like the movie is so great and so satisfying in total that as it winds down, who cares? And then the bloopers are just like let you leave the theater, assuming you saw with them on it, with just a great feeling because that's exactly what you want to just relive. I love credit sequences that let you, in video games and movies, that let you briefly relive the things that you enjoyed about the movie to just sort of go out on a high yeah. note. And so I, it has never bothered me that these movies end like Scooby Doo, you know, <laughs> like silly, uh, silly. Well, you have to you have to go games. out with a song on this movie because this is a film that has just only recently, courtesy of Stinky Pete, put the idea that these toys will all end up rotting in a landfill yeah. as their final <laughs> destination oh, into your We were that in Toy Story 3, don't worry. Yeah. Well, I think going back to kind of the friendship angle, that's kind of why Buzz putting the moves on Jesse bothers me is because we've got this movie about forming friendships and bonds and, and then you get a new girl character in and it's like, well, of course she's got to pair up with somebody. And I don't know... I, I, 
that's probably me reading too much into things like I tend to do, but it's just like, why can't she just go and be friends? Yeah, I thought about it too. You have, you know, Woody is, Woody is her big brother, right? Like mm. the way that she looks up to him there, clearly that was not, a, that would have been a really weird relationship. Um, if Bo Peep weren't there, but like, why, I don't understand why they did that. I, I really, it, it doesn't really bother me, but it kind of niggles at me. Like, why did they have to do that? Why couldn't it just be like, oh, look at us. We're friends. We're family. And, you know. Well, I think this movie is like China. I think there's a drought on on uh, female toys, though, if you're going to have male-female pairings. It's like Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head. He was excited to get Mrs. Potato Head, and they're paired up. And then Woody's got Bo Peep, but there's mm-hmm. just a lot of... A lot of uh, man, it's like Alaska, seemingly male man. toys just rattling around. Like, look at all those army men. What are they doing? <laughs> the usual. Oh, God. It's all dudes. Don't ask, don't tell, John. <laughs> <laughs> the movie wants to have relationships. It wants to have to show that they're like you know committed couples here, and even though they don't lean on any of them, so they bring in this girl character, and I guess it just falls into you know well when there's an available girl character of, of similar stature and species to you then then uh, you know relationships are in play but well and to be fair he doesn't really put the moves on her hard he sort of haltingly points out that she's he's impressed by her he's He's impressed by her her, and then they do the the wing gag it's not like he's uh you know and she pays no mind he's like he's an awkward teenage boy basically it's a way to tell a couple of funny jokes about buzz and who he is and how he fits in now that this has changed a little bit i mean but but i but I, i see your point too where i was like that's weird that's, it felt a little weird to me that it was in there. Yeah, it this, is a little this whole, the, the whole of Toy Story, like, it's not that long ago. It's the 90s, right? But, like, if you want to get down to it, like, it's very gender normative. The girls have all the pink toys, and they play with the little dollies and have kitchen things and have nail polish. And, you know, they, they do so much better in Inside Out where the girl plays hockey yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, does not have everything pink and frilly. Now, there's anything wrong with pink and frilly and pony, but it's like the Toy Story movies are very straight down the middle, exactly what you would expect. Yeah, that's true. Like, in terms of all the stereotypes and uh, the slots that we want to put people into. Not really pushing on those boundaries at all. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to know who hooks up with Bullseye. No. Slotted <laughs> pigs and all of that. Yeah. that we. His cork comes out. It does. Look away. Avert your eyes. Nobody look. <laughs> so one, one thing I would recommend, which I've uh, been doing and I often do, is uh, if I have a, a digital version of this thing, is... Uh, if you have a chance to just watch scenes in this movie with the sound off, you really don't appreciate the animation, especially in a movie that's fun and the script is good and you're laughing at the jokes and getting caught up in the story. Just watch it with the sound off and look at what these people do. Like toys need to be rotated when they're away yeah. and, and what he does the thing with his hands and the look on Stinky Pete's face when the two Barbie dolls leave his little box. Like just every the, the animation here is is superb. It is, you know, hand drawn animation caliber. Uh, it really and it, so much more. I think more sophisticated than it was in uh, in the first Toy Story. That uh, and you, I think to really appreciate it, just uh, take a look with no sound. Yeah. So this is uh, this. I would put this as my top Toy Story film, and definitely maybe in the top three of the Pixar films uh, that I've seen. And, and I think why it's important is because. I mean, obviously, the first couple of films, the thing on display was mostly this is our software and it can do these amazing things. And we really can, uh, you know, make a film that's entirely computer generated and people will still love it. You know, it was kind of exciting to sort of get the idea of what people seeing Snow White for the first time in 1937 probably experienced. But by the time we're on to movie three, they've kind of got things under control and that's no longer as impressive as it used to be. And so what really needed to happen was that they needed to prove that they could effectively make you cry 
but I'm really bring the drama and really you know bring the story to the fore because at some point the software is so good that that uh, that making a movie with a computer actually becomes easier than making a live action movie and certainly a lot easier than an animated oh, film. I can, he- I can hear Dr. Wayne yeah. crumbling to dust as you speak. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, at some point, you know, you can obviously you're going to want to push the art further every time, but. At some point, it reaches the point where it's good enough that somebody can put together, say, a food fight yeah, very cheaply and without putting any kind of real thought into it. And and this was the movie that proved to me that Pixar was a real deal. I mean, this, this was a going concern that could could live on long after the excitement of the technology had faded away. Yeah, they, they had to up their game, and they did. I mean, like, not to say that they concentrated. They did, the, other, the first two movies are all very solid. They have very sturdy stories. Um, they, they, they are sophisticated enough for adults and appealing to kids and all of that or whatever. But, I mean, it's not – I'm really thinking – I haven't seen Bugs Life in years, but are there any scenes – in the first Toy Story or Bug's Life that are likely to bring adults to tears. I don't Not think that so. That's the the, yards, the nope. yardstick, but like there's the joke about the whole uh, Pixar sadness department, uh, you know. Like, you don't have to do that to be a powerful movie in some ways. It's kind of uh, a, a little bit, uh, you know, if you just go for maudlin and just know where the heartstrings are and tug on them, things that we don't accept in live-action movies that we will accept in animated movies uh, for whatever reason. But it's a similar story, similar ideas. They just want them to go deeper, and it's really tricky to do because... How do you go deeper without making um, your movie over serious and not interesting to kids? And how do you get people to take it seriously? And Toy Story Two showed how you did it. Yeah, just as fun. Just you know, it's kind of again great Simpsons episodes do a similar thing, especially early on before their their heart was entirely torn out of that show. Um, where they there'd be a moment in a silly Simpsons episode where you'd feel something just for a second. And you'd be like, wait, how did they do that? Like not for long, just for a moment. And then in Toy Story, you know, the whole movie, you're feeling things and laughing and getting caught up with things and being dazzled by cleverness and animation and all that stuff. Um, I, I think I had to see Toy Story three again to to really rank them, but it, I would pretty feel pretty comfortable saying this is the best Toy Story movie mm. for sure. Yeah, I agree that this is that this was the best Toy Story movie, um, and. You know, when I when I saw it when it first came out, what was really impressive was, you know, it did not have the sophomore slump. It was it was a better movie than the first one, uh, and I and I was kind of surprised by it. I think the conceit of the story, uh, what the story is about, this this whole thing, what you know, the existential problem for for Woody and the toys, and why am I here? That's a story that gets told not about toys so much, but that's a story that that's gotten told before, but. The, the twist they put on it and the, this the issue of the, of uh, Woody being a collectible, you know that's something that really that's a story that could only be told at a certain time, right it, it has to be told after there is both mass production of toys, which didn't really happen until sometime in the 20th century, and there has to be a mass media uh, for there to be nostalgia for those toys. So it's it, to me that it's really interesting. This was a very modern story. You have to you have to be at a certain point in history, the history of the world, to have this story told. Not just because you know, not just because it's computer animation or even that it's a movie, but just the, the fundamentals of this story could not be told too much earlier than when this story was told. And I just thought that was a fascinating thing. The whole thing about not just what's what's a toy to be, but what adults do. Because um, it is the adults who are kind of perverting the what the toys are for uh, by putting them in museums and take and you know it's adults that are locking them away. It's not it's not the kids that are locking them away. It's it's the adults. Uh, it's very similar to 
when I think uh, when The Force Awakens came out, there was uh, an SNL fake commercial for a new set of of Star Wars toys that come out. I don't know if you, if you saw this, but it's, it starts off with kids are really excited about the cool toys that are coming out. Isn't this great? And then suddenly 30 year old men start appearing in the, in the commercial and they're taking the toys and, you know, putting them on shelves and keeping them in the box. And, and it, in the theme of that commercial, and of course everybody laughs, but the theme of that commercial is the same theme as Toy Story 2. Um, played more for laughs uh, than Toy Story 2 did. I think Toy Story 2 handled that that idea very intelligently. And it was something that, you know, the filmmakers must have thought about an awful lot. So I, I really like this movie, not just because it makes me cry, um, but, but I just thought this was a very well done movie, start to finish. The theme was very interesting. Yes, it's, it's got the funny stuff in it. It's just, it's, it's just great. The ambition level here, um, the art, uh, the confidence that they could execute this, even though, yeah, I know they were under the gun with this one. Um, the ambition of the story, or maybe it was that they, they were so worried about getting it out that they didn't think about what they were doing uh, on some level. And uh, but it really did. It really does come together. Uh, it's striking because it is by a, a studio that's that seems to be firing on all cylinders, whereas the first movie was an experiment and they were, you know, they were struggling to, to make what is the first Pixar movie. And I would argue maybe the Toy Story 2 is the first like of what we think of now as Pixar movies, that moment with that song, when we, when we tear up, I mean, that's like a Pixar moment. Now movies have Pixar moments or they try to have them anyway. Like we take it for granted. You're like, Oh look, it's so, it's so easy to just put on a sad song. And then like, it just works perfectly. It's just a gag. It's a gimmick, but you just look at so many other movies. There's good movies, movies that, animated movies that are so clearly in the Pixar mode that try to have that scene and they get close like it's not bad you don't go I'm not moved by this at all you're a little bit moved mm-hmm. but then you realize how damn hard it is yeah. to do what the way Pixar does it that you can have all the pieces and put them all together in a pretty competent way and have a pretty good movie like I'm thinking of something like Big Hero 6 which is a good movie yeah. and I enjoy and they try to do a lot of the same things Pixar does and all of them are competent to good but Toy Story 2 is just a, a head and shoulders yeah. above. And this is where it, I mean, this is where the idea of Pixar doing that, Pixar making you cry, it comes from here. It comes from Toy Story 2. Uh, okay, we're going to wrap up the Pixar uh, movie club for now. We'll be back with another one probably like in a year or maybe a, hopefully a little bit less. We'll have to talk oh, about Oh, you, you better have me back for that Toy one, buddy, because I got some Story theories three. on Toy Story 3. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, will, we will theorize. That'll be the next one. But until then, I want to thank my guest on this Toy Story 2 episode of The Incomparable, Steve Lutz. Thanks for being here. Jason, have you seen my pickaxe? I have. I won't say where. <laughs> Thank you, Jason, for uh, for this delightful discussion. I really enjoyed myself. Merlin Mann, thank you for being here. Thank you, everybody. John Syracuse, thank you. Sorry, did I hurt your equipment? <laughs> so many good lines. The Internet's Dr. Drang, thanks for joining us. I'm glad we stopped. My parts are killing me. <laughs> <laughs> and Aline Sims, thanks for joining us tonight. You never forget kids like Emily or Andy, but they forget you. Oh. And on that note, look, it's the incomparable episode where, where we make you cry. Way to end it on a downer. Gotta set the mood for Toy Story 3. Yeah. Ugh. Well, on that note, we thank everybody out there for listening. Now, just go have a cry here. Here's a tissue. We'll see you next time. <laughs>